I'm Tia. And I'm Lauren. This is Journey to Transformation, the Twitter edition. Yay, welcome. We are in the Twitter space. And what we're doing right now is just having a free space open on Twitter so that we can have a conversation about hacking the theory of change. Lauren, what the hell's the theory of change? Yeah. So why are we talking about the theory of change? Our podcast has this theme of transformation and me and Tia over our careers in the the non-for-profit sector have interacted with the theory of change many times at the organizational level, project level, program level. And we feel that this is a framework or a process that perhaps needs a, a bit of a transformation. And so today's discussion is really looking at what needs to change. Is the theory of change still fit for purpose? Does it need a transformation? What could this look like? What about it needs to change at what level? And do we actually need another tool altogether? I'm wondering if it's useful at this stage to just do a little bit of a background on where the theory of change has come from. What is it? How do we get here? What's the point? Yeah. So, I mean, the theory of change, I think, I mean, a far of papers that I've read um, came about in the 1950s and 60s, back when people were looking at theories in evaluation and theories in development. And American scholars were looking at how they could do evaluations better and how they could look at how change happens. And from that, it started to evolve into um, a theory-driven tool, again, coming from the evaluation space rather than the monitoring space. And there's a group called the Aspen Institute, and they're the ones that published a paper called Evaluating Comprehensive Community Initiatives. And this is really where the term theory of change was popularized. And behind that, a set of assumptions um, that the theory of change was built on. And from there, the theory of change started to evolve alongside the log frame into something that the non-for-profit sector started to use. So that is kind of a very, very brief history. How it appeared in larger organizations more recently is been quite diverse how it's been used, um, who uses it, and quite traditionally sat in the monitoring and evaluation space, but also has become a strategic instrument in some organizations as well. So I think starting from its evaluation roots, it's evolved into more strategic thinking as well. Am I remembering it right that Theories of Change was born out of the same time period as we got like log frames and all that? nonsense. Yeah. So, I mean, perhaps a little bit before that even because of its roots in development evaluation, but definitely the log frame and the evaluation OECD DAC criteria um, all came about in the 90s and then the theory of change alongside it. So then each evolving um, as it's in, in its own right as a framework, but then how those intertwine and work with each other has also become a really key, uh, important reflection over the last couple of years. And is it fair to say that we've moved I feel like I haven't seen a log frame in like six years. <laughs> Is it just because I've stopped doing them because I think they're terrible or are we moving actually quite far away from log frames as being a way of understanding? I, I I want to say I wish, which kind of reveals my opinion on the log frame. Um, but no, the, the log frame is still very much in existence and is still used by lots of donors. <laughs> um, but there is this shift in monitoring evaluation to critique the log frame and how rigid it is as a framework and how it doesn't allow you to look outside of a set of prescriptive indicators. So there is a shift to looking more at how change happens in a more fluid and systems affected space. Mm, okay. Um, so I think there is this tension between how do you let go of the log frame and really move into a space of, I don't actually know how change happens. 
And I'm going to gather evidence to understand it and start from a place of not knowing rather than a place of knowing. Right. Um, okay. So some donors are moving in that direction, not all. Okay. Well, should we but shout them out? about the donors? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Should we get back to theories of change? What are we doing today? Why are we trying to shake it up? What's yes. happening? So, I mean, the theory of change has had a lot of critique over the years. It's been too linear. What do we mean by theory? How do people use it? Organizations using it inconsistently at different levels and also mixing it with being a more sort of theory of action, something that we do rather than a belief in how change happens. So there has been a lot of critique on the theory of change over the years, but as the sector itself, the non-profit sector is going through a bit of a transformation, hopefully, fingers crossed, a journey mm. to transformation. <laughs> some might say. Some might say. We've obviously had COVID-19 and I think that was a catalyst for a lot of organisations reflecting on adaptive management and being responsive to a pandemic. And so I think there's a new question here in terms of, is the theory of change still fit for purpose? Is it still allowing us as organisations to sit together and reflect? Is it actually allowing us to be more effective in our monitoring and evaluation and get us more effective outcomes? Yeah, I think I would disagree with you here in the sense that like COVID-19 was the thing that agitated for organizations be, to be thinking adaptively. I think in some ways the funding mechanisms loosened things up for people to be able to because nobody knew what the hell was going on and everyone was freaking out. Very true. So I will disagree with you there and say that I don't actually think that COVID-19 is like the starting place for adaptation, but I think like more and more complexity, the space is becoming more and more competitive mm-hmm. and mm. different layers of context. So thinking about large movements of people and, you know, climate crisis, I think all of that stuff meant that people had to be thinking a little bit more with a bit more agility, whether it worked or not, or yeah, absolutely. to an extent. So I, I think I would say probably a bit before COVID, I think. Yeah. I mean, the theory of change itself was born out of the need to think more complex, complex, more complexly. <laughs> Are you making up the words now? Okay. Um, to think, yeah, in a more complex way. My point is this pandemic or even the sustainable development goals or these big kind of like shifts in the sector are these points in which we have to relook and adapt and find something different. Right. And so, you know, being critical, as you've said before to you, is easy. So maybe we should start in a critical space. Okay, let's go. So what's wrong with the theory of change? Everything. (laughs) I think for me, as someone who's been in sector for a while now, I had so much hope about the theory of change. Like here's a space that we can talk about how change happens outside of a output to outcome impact causal chain. Right. Um, You know, so here's something a bit more exciting, a bit more let's let go of this kind of prescriptive nature of monitoring and evaluation. But then in reality, you know, approaching a theory of change when you've never seen it before, or understand the process is kind of complicated. Okay, And I think, you know, there, there's huge limitations in terms of the translation of complexity in the theory of change and how you facilitate and create one into other spaces, either in, you know, other groups in your organization or your rights holders or your partners. Right. And so I think there's that tension between the theory of change needing to be complex because change is complicated. And then on the other side of that, needing it to be simple, because if you can't describe what you're trying to achieve, then I don't know that there's maybe a slight problem there too. So I think there's a bit of a tension between those two groups. And I don't necessarily think we found a way to reconcile that. 
because you and I have both seen theory of change diagrams that are wildly out of control, that have arrows everywhere, (laughs) boxes, different colors. And, you know, when you look at it straight away, you don't understand what it is, which is problematic because (laughs) diagrams are meant to be easier. But I think what people forget is also a theory of change is not just that diagram. It should be accompanied by a narrative that draws from power analysis, gender analysis, that draws from what you know is happening. So those married together can give more insight. But I guess for me, one of the critical problems here is people are not necessarily joining together a diagram and a narrative in a way that anyone can understand and your partners and your rights holders. So we've gone from a log frame to something that is often overly complicated. I guess the challenge that I see is is less whether or not partners or rights holders can understand what it is that you've put in the theory of change, because I think you can you know, who knows? But for me, it's always a question of whether they were involved in its development. That's usually not the case. And I think one of the things we've seen before is that these are assumptions that get put into theories of change, which, you you, you know, that's what it is. It's assumptions about how change happens, but it's based on an internal logic that may not represent the external reality, which I always find quite a weird a weird one. If an organization feels like if I do this, it's going to lead to this, it's going to lead to this and this and this and this and this. There's a lot of the echo chamber of how that happens and that those assumptions is can be a bit yeah. as echo chambers are very insular. And so how do you expand that outwards is one of the things I think is a bit weird. I also think the linearity of the theory of change or assumptions around it being a linear process, I find quite weird. Yeah, no, these are really great points. The inclusion one, I think, I mean, I can't think of an example where a theory of change has been built with rights holders, which... <laughs> I mean, it's the problem, I guess, right? And so I'd be keen to hear from anyone in Twitter space whether they've done that and what that looks like. And then the second one around assumptions. I think what we also forget is theory of change should ultimately be evidence-based. Like you shouldn't necessarily just be creating something for a program and thinking this is how it fits together. In an ideal world, you've got, you know, five or 10 years worth of evidence and creating space to do a meta-analysis and say, oh, we've learned this or we do know this. Mm. You will always have assumptions, but having the evidence to say we know that this does link to this. Yeah. Okay. But there's holes in that, right? (laughs) There's holes in that publication bias. There's holes in like what kind of evidence that people can bring into it or choose to. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I would 100% say monitoring data from Mm. your past project or program. Mm -hmm. I would, to some extent, go looking for what's out there. But, you know, in theory, your theory (laughs) of change should be built in the context and drawing data from what's happened there and the context. Okay. Because that strikes me as quite an interesting point there, because if you are drawing on evidence from your monitoring data of what works or what has worked in different contexts, where is the space to innovate then to do something different? How do you feed that into a theory of change? If you're drawing on stuff that you know works, then there is a really strong incentive to just keep doing the same things. But then, but this is exactly another critique of the theory of change. Like, where is the space to say, why hasn't this worked before? Okay. Because it's always so positive and forward looking and you're right, like you're reinforcing, you know, your space, your knowledge and evidence and it's all confirmation bias. Mm. But so where where is the space when you're building a theory of change to say, yeah, why hasn't this changed before? And so you look into it and you, and you kind of have a couple of factors, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. Where do you put that? Like, that seems quite important to me. 
you know, like we, we, it hasn't changed for X, Y reason. And where does that go? But do you just snap that bit out of your diagram? (laughs) (laughs) Or is it from that basis that like hasn't changed before because of X and this is your kind of problem. And then you start to build a theory of change from a, a lens of a problem rather than impact. Can you do that? Well, there is a problem tree. Yeah, that feels like a problem tree analysis. But I, there was one thing I, I toyed with at Oxfam a little bit, toyed with, terrible phrase, that I um, was thinking about exploring with some others in um, having a theory of change that's kind of positive on one side. You're looking towards impact, you're looking at change as it moves in a positive direction. But on the flip side of that, having a negative theory of change, if we do this, what harm could it cause? And if oh, this happens, then what negative space could happen? So they kind of work in parallel. So a little bit kind of what you're saying. Sort of, but an Um, interesting thing to think about. Anyway, going back to your other point about like holes in evidence and building out into the theory of change, I do think that is a, yeah, something that the sector has kind of forgotten that when you come to build a theory of change, you need to to go and, and see what else is out there. Because at this point, you know, we've been doing this now, not me, but the sector has been working with theory of change for 20, 30 years. In some countries, projects and programs have been ongoing. If we still don't know or we still don't have a theory of what does and doesn't work in some spaces, then I am lost. Presumably so are they. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about this before with clients and I, I guess I do sort of understand where this is coming from in that Like a theory of change codifies your assumptions about how change happens based on evidence. But is it absolutely a necessary thing to do to understand that? Because you and I have cobbled together what we think a theory of change would have looked like retrospectively to help test a theories as part of an evaluation. So it was possible to reconstruct something using other methods and approaches. Is it totally necessary? Do you have to? Okay, so my answer to that is it depends what you're using it for. The unfortunate things is a lot of donors are asking for them and proposals right now. And it's kind of become the new log frame, like the new ask. You have to create a theory of change. So there's an unfortunate kind of one um, and, and presumably an accountability piece. But, um, okay, okay. Yeah, come let's come to back that. to that. Um, <laughs> and I'm presuming I'm making assumptions. But then there's also an accountability piece in the theory of change that you might create. So are you holding yourself to account for achieving those outcomes? Mm-hmm. And by putting that in a public space and or sharing it with your rights holders or partners, hopefully they're there in construction, another thing. But are you then saying this is what we're trying to prove that we're going to achieve and therefore it's an accountability piece? Or of my favourite is it's a learning space. So actually the theory of change married with a learning agenda works really well. And having kind of interjections across interjectures spaces across <laughs> um, a project or programme where people come together around the theory of change, hone in on a particular pathway or a particular um, cause and effect arrow and say, is is that the case? What do we know about this so far? And have a learning question about some of those assumptions. So let's learn, is our assumption here correct or not? And I found it a very, very good reflective space. And then to come back to that at the end of the project or program and then reconstruct it with all the evidence that you've gathered, tacit knowledge, bringing everyone together and saying, oh, actually, no, we're a little bit off here. We were overambitious here. That isn't actually what, what it ended up looking like. In short, it depends why you've developed it. Is it for learning? Is it for accountability? Is it for evaluation or monitoring purposes or maybe even all four? 
So how do we fix it? If you were going to take it apart and start again, what's the first thing you'd do? Wow. Um, <laughs> um, if we had to take it apart and fix it, um, I'd definitely move away from kind of what you said, Tia, about it being linear and being, you know, boxes and arrows and, and a very kind of typical design frame. It tends to be the one that people jump into, perhaps because they're less familiar with about how creative you could be in displaying change, for example. So I definitely explore new ways to represent it, new kinds of diagrams. Could it be a flow diagram? I don't know. Is there circular. new ways? Yeah, circular, yeah. Uh, more data visualization. Is there new ways to represent what it is you're trying to say? So maybe in some ways it's the narrative that comes before the diagram. The other thing I'd say is if you are going to create a theory of change, connecting it to other key parts of your project and program. So connecting it to a learning agenda, connecting it to a strategic plan, connecting it to finances, to human resources. Like the point in which it becomes a standalone document is when it becomes a problem. And thinking about outside the box about who and where you connect it to. You know, finance and human resources tend to get kind of left to one side, but if they see their vision and their role in a theory of change, then perhaps that's where we all become united around and more effective. <laughs> I know I sound like an idealist, but here we go. Um, so that's not really, a, I suppose it is a change. It's not necessarily dismantling it, but it's a way of connecting it better. I don't know. I wish I could come up with something really radical right now, but you probably have to give me another 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the linearity or the assumptions that I find quite unusual. So it's, you know, my input will lead to this output, will lead to this outcome. Maybe it's being a bit pedantic, but I also find an issue with like theory of change because it's several different theories of how you think change is going to happen. And so, you know, I don't want to get too crazy about the language of it, but I just find that a bit weird because it never really works like, <laughs> like that. A clean line between your inputs, your activities, your initiatives, all the way through even to your more immediate outcomes. That's it's not as clean as a theory of change seems to lead me to believe anyways. So can you fix that? <laughs> I, well, um, I have actually seen theories of change where it's not like that. Mm. And it's actually based on how changes might happen in different stakeholders rather than like an arrow box. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like changes that you might see in civil society or changes that you might see in government or private sector. And they're kind of in their own little boxes and there's less linkages between them. Some sideways linkages rather than downward linkages. Okay. I kind of hope that through examples that start to appear where it's less linear, people start to step outside of that box. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse my word. Because you're absolutely right. Like, especially in complex contexts, sometimes an outcome will happen, but then it might be retracted or there might be yeah. a crisis that means that policy actually fell through or got retracted or whatever. A community group understands something, but then they move on and there's a crisis or whatever. So you're absolutely right. It's not necessarily a representation of what's happening in reality. And the theory reality gap is something that I've seen as a big critique. So that's where you have to update it right and that's where you have to maybe write things that reflect what's happening at the time back onto your theory of change so if you're writing monthly reports or quarterly reports or you're writing whatsapp messages or whatever <laughs> have them reflect back on the theory of change and say we if from this output to this outcome it you know at the moment it doesn't look like it's happening because of xyz mm. and again that's why it can't ever be a standalone piece because so many other things need to intersect with it Let's go back to the theory piece as well. Do you feel like the theory of change is not necessarily representative of what it is? 
Yeah, I, I think it's just the language, the idea that there is a single theory of change, mm. because there are many different assumptions and theories within a single theory of change. I'm using my little air bunnies. Within it, there are lots of different theories that are at play mm. and that the exercise at some point is to test those different theories within it. Maybe that's just a semantic issue. No, I I mean, I, I think you're right. People call it a theory of change and there's an assumption that that's like one theory and that's kind of the way that people are going. And it's something that you said before, like how does that connect to another organization in your field who... It also has a theory of change and another way of getting there. How do you connect those two? Um, How do you? Well, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's it's more about cluster meetings or having conversations in other networks. But Right. Okay. And I, I don't think it's happening. I don't think people are taking all their theories of change together. Oh my gosh, I can't speak. Taking all their <laughs> theories of change together and saying, okay, we've taken this way and we've taken this approach and we've learned this. What have you learned? It feels like in the conversation around like nexus, humanitarian development and peace building and or peace building, it feels like this is this the starting point of like the collective outcomes conversation, no? Yeah, really good shout. Yeah. Okay. Could you explain what collective outcomes are? How about you explain what <laughs> <laughs> The double and triple nexus. The double nexus is humanitarian and development and the triple nexus is humanitarian development and peace. And so the nexus approach is trying to be more coherent and collaborative across the three different pillars. So trying to bring programming together in a way that has a more systems approach and is trying to address the root causes of protracted conflict or ongoing conflict by bringing what is often siloed pillars together. So a nexus mantra is called collective outcome. Outcomes. And what this means is having a set of outcomes that lots of organizations work towards. So rather than, let's say, having a project or a program with your own, your own outcomes, which you will still have, there'll be higher level collective outcomes situated at the UN or government level in which five or six organizations in that context all have to work towards. So it's really kind of joining together the outcomes and impacts of many organizations. So very much what we're saying here. So maybe that's it. The solution is there. Oh, oh. <laughs> in, in some ways, that is the way that it should be going in that like those collective outcomes may in of itself fit into a nationally held theory of change and mm. all organizations or non-governmental organizations should be working towards that. And in some ways, that's already there when you think of the cluster systems and, right. you know, health and uh, wash, water and sanitation, hygiene all have their own indicators of which many organizations are working towards. Right. which appear in humanitarian um, reports by the UN and so on. Mm -hmm. so, so to some degree, it's already there, but maybe it's just not manifested in a way that's the same as a theory of change. Here's my other beef with the theory of change. That impact sits at the top and it's a thing you can never test because it's too far away. It's got nothing to do with you necessarily. It interacts with so many other people. So if we think of the idea of collective outcomes, the impact piece rests in so many different spaces that how do you test assumptions? Like you can really only test assumptions within the things that you can control to a certain extent that you have an influence over, but that the impact sits at the top or sits at the center depending on the configuration of the, the diagram. But it's a thing you can never test, which I find really frustrating. Yeah, it's a great point. So I read an article that has very similar views to you on this. And Ooh. we'll put this in the show note. It agrees and says that, you know, 
the impact is often a marketing tool because it's mm. it represents okay. the mission of the organization. So it's kind of tying people together and reminding them ultimately why they're doing this. And so it's almost like, dare we say, like, it's a bit like the branding. It's a bit mm. like, here we are, here's why we're doing it and how it reflects our organizational mandate. Because there is the risk with a the theory of change that you either are overly ambitious or not ambitious enough and mm. you're, you know, siloed on my own project and nothing else else or I'm way too ambitious and I'm trying to change multiple things at once. So I suppose the impact is kind of keeping you a little bit within that organizational frame. I've seen impact be very ambitious, which is fantastic. But if if a theory of change is something that's supposed to evolve and change and, and be somewhat iterative because you're testing and you're looking and you're touching it with greater frequency, then it almost feels like that thing that sits at the top should be a little bit more manageable so that you can understand how you're moving towards it, even if it's incremental. But if it's like end world hunger, then like that interacts with so many different pieces that it almost feels like it would do the opposite and be really demoralizing because you'd be like, well, Elon Musk already gave his 44 billion that he was going <laughs> to give to uh, end world hunger. He already used it on Twitter. So, yeah, should it be slightly smaller? the ambition that sits at the top or I'm all about a hearts and minds activity. And I think it's really important to keep people motivated by having something that sits right at the top and you understand why the hell you're going into work every day or sitting at your computer every day. You understand why that's happening. But if you think about it as this sort of like a guiding star, if it's too big and too ambitious, you just feel like, well, it's never going to happen. So this project that I've got is never going to touch that in a thousand years. So what's your take on <laughs> calibrating the yeah. impact? I mean, I, I guess no, <laughs> through I, a reality-based lens. <laughs> I agree, but I mean, are we all not hopeful idealists in this sector? Because I'm not. Why, Bartia? <laughs> why would we? You know, we, we do this because we want to have an impact, and you know, I'm with you very much on the hearts and minds piece. But I mean, maybe it also just depends on what level, because people do have organisational theory of change. So the extent to which that's lots of projects coming together and you know being analysed could be a way. It may also slightly depend on, dare I say it, the donors call in a proposal because they may have, you know, a broader impact and then have lots of organisations that they're sub-granting to underneath that. Okay. So their role could be to look at how that feeds into the impact. So maybe there's actually different stakeholders have different roles in assessing assumptions across the theory of change. Okay. Radical, not really, but not that radical. <laughs> yeah. at the project level or a smaller level. Yeah, I, I agree with the realism because I've seen it being way too overly ambitious. And especially when a program is more than one context. So like if you have a big program, and it covers six contexts, for example, mm. the, the impact tends to be massive because the scale feels bigger. So kind of matching it then. But you can also have smaller theories of change at perhaps context level that feed into a bigger theory of change mm -hmm. at program level. <laughs> what you're describing is moving closer and closer to objectives and key results. I don't know if you hear that in your voice, but that's... <laughs> um, Sorry, what objectives and key results? Transformational goal-setting methodology. <laughs> Stay tuned. Everyone uh, reach out to Tia Rogers for more information <laughs> on that, please. How big does the impact need to be? I'm just trying to get a sense of like scale. I mean, I think it can be as big as you want it to be, depending on your funding part and your overall ambitions for the program. But if you just want to change one person's 
life or have an influence over one person, they also don't operate in isolation. They also operate in a system and interact with many other stakeholders. Which, Intersectionality. Which, <laughs> which you know, ex- expands outside of just looking at how things influence them. It strikes me as interesting that like, when I think about the complexity that's involved, as you're rightly pointing out, to change one person's life, to then stack another five million on top of that seems a bit hectic yeah is that why theories of change get a little bit wild and out of control when people get too ambitious definitely and that's where i think the narrative piece or your power analysis or gender analysis or conflict analysis also should feed into it but i am also in favor and i've said this before in organizations is is of having more specific theories of change so you can have one that is about systems like how change happens Mm -hmm. but whether you then hone in on diversity and inclusion or you hone in on a particular barrier and a conflict area and you just hone in on that bit Mm -hmm. I don't really know what that looks like in terms of having again too much too many theories of change you're always gonna end up with too many frameworks and ways of measuring and monitoring things and you don't want to just have a tokenistic theory of change or one that you don't look at and there's always a risk if you start adding more and more but whether then that sits within another department maybe so have we fixed the theory of change no okay (laughs) i mean i think one really really key thing is as you said right at the beginning is the inclusion of rights holders in this process. Mm. Like if there has to be some kind of fix, it has to be that. But what does that actually look like? Is it as we sometimes do with monitoring and evaluation and participatory learning action? You know, you go into the community, you kind of map out what's happening, the problems, the barriers, the blockages. And and that's kind of the foundations of your theory of change. When I was in Cambodia, I facilitated a theory of change development session with some partners and some members from the community and I rented out a movie theater. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> it was really cool. It was like three How days. did that go? Yeah, it went really well. And we all just sat and ate popcorn and <laughs> we put put it up on the big screen and they could like, we put a dry erase board up as well. So nice. like in front of it and people could draw on it. And basically like the dry erase boards were kind of enormous sticky notes on a movie theater Oh my God, screen. amazing. It was very cool. It was very, very cool. And so how, talk to us about how you got rights holders involved in that process. So this was when I was working for BSO. I can have a shout out here because it was a cool program. It was a governance and participation program. And so they were launching this new sort of thematic stream because they'd always had education and health and livelihoods and things like that. But they didn't have a governance and participation stream at the time. I'm trying to remember now, this was in 2004. 13 or something a while ago. We had gotten together partners, subnational line ministries and local government entities and things like that. And so it was bringing them in was the easy bit. Obviously, per diems makes it a lot easier. We should probably talk about per diems another day because I have some major issues. But And then just getting some people, a few members from the community brought into that process. It wasn't loads. I think maybe we had three or four. And it was definitely more heavily weighted to partners and volunteers being in there. But it was nice to have some people in this space, you know, with the benefit of now were nine years of additional work, additional thought, additional maturity. I think I probably would have done it differently because, you know, as you rightly point out around like power analysis, you had a dynamic that was put into place in that room about how change happens when you have the people who are responsible for delivering change in the space where people are talking about why that may or may not be reasonable in their context. So I think I probably would have done it 
differently and had maybe two sort of overlapping processes as opposed to like bringing everybody together in one. I think, you know, nine years ago, I was like, yeah, everybody just get together. It's going to be cool. Just eat popcorn and like vibe in this movie theater. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) But I don't think I was like fully considering what kind of dynamics might exist in that space and who would be able to speak and who would defer to who. And that was the young idealist in me. That person's dead now. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Everybody's just trying to exert power on everybody else and everybody's just terrible. So, I mean, maybe people are involving rights holders. They're just not telling anyone and it's in a cinema in, you know, context like Cambodia around the world like okay. you know the fact that it's not getting up to headquarters might not be a bad thing yeah yeah, yeah. um depending on how much popcorn was used yeah um, a lot yeah <laughs> but I mean I think the key thing there is the theory of change can and should be a participatory process right like it should be the space where rights holders and local partners can challenge what you think is happening. Mm. And I think that's the space. And we've talked about this in other podcasts where rights holders and partners should be able to say, no, that's not it. You're wrong. And this is the reasons why. I think the theory of change should evolve to be that space. But maybe, you know, the, the barriers are very much, I think, time when you're writing proposals, you mm. know, the time you have to go. And we've heard it before. Do um, big organizations have time to go and really consult with their rights holders mm. in a six week writing window? Right. So then maybe you should be creating theories of change well before because change happens with or without your project. You know, maybe you should be investing more time before a proposal stage to develop theories of change. I mean, that that's one major barrier. What's your take on constructing a theory of change alongside a five, 10 year strategy? You're making a face, which makes me think. No, it's not a bad face. Okay. It's, it's a, I'm thinking face. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, this is a really interesting one I hadn't thought of um, that, you know, people want to have the theory of change along their side, their strategic plan to marry that impact and strategy piece or change and strategy. But what happens when you do need to change your theory of change monthly, quarterly, every year? What happens to your strategic plan? Then surely that should also be adapted, right? They should be adapted and changed in parallel. Yeah, but can you imagine what... A terrible time in organization. Think about how terrible it is when an organization decides that they want to go through a new strategy process and how disruptive that is. I think in part, in fairness, it's how organizations go about developing their strategy, which is like problematic and silly in many cases and too heavy so that you don't have the ability to pivot and change and there's no agility in it. And it's like, you know, walking with cement shoes. If you're going to let your theory of change shift and adapt As you go along, it almost seems like a really unwieldy ask for organizations to then have their strategies do that as well. Like, just think about the design costs alone and the reprinting. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. (laughs) So maybe then, you know, your organizational or theory of change that complements your strategy is broader. And actually the detail comes from your projects and programs. They gather evidence, they understand what else is not working. They test the assumptions. And on a less frequent basis, that is then drawn up and reflected on the strategic theory of change, perhaps once a year or once every two years, Mm. so that it's kind of a more gathered meta-analysis of what you know, and then you reflect it back. I mean, I'm in complete favor of just having strategies that are smaller, leaner because if you're touching your theory of change monthly quarterly whatever and your strategy 
doesn't change based on changes that you see in your theory of change, then it feels like crazy to keep holding on to something for another year, two years. It's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> like it just seems a bit yeah. wild to me. Maybe this is also about a bit more forward planning. Like, you know, if you've got a program that's going on for five years and you know there's an election coming up and there's other big things happening, that you factor that into points in which you might need to reflect back on it. So actually maybe the problem is with the way we've approached the theory of change to be iterative or try to be, we're doing that within a project cycle rather than actually reflective of what's happening in the context. Mm -hmm. So maybe it is when there is big elections or when a disaster happens or something that they're the moments you look at it after rather than in a project cycle. Mm. So then it's less bound by like it has to be like rigid every three months every six months maybe it's more bound by what happens in a context what if nothing happens you're just chilling um well does that happen in places that we work sometimes nothing happens yeah things just kind of tick along the status quo is maintained for yeah i guess if nothing happens then you might need to (laughs) Build against the project cycle. <laughs> I think anyway. touch. I think having routine touch points along a project cycle makes sense to me mm. because if you're talking about gathering evidence and using evidence to construct, but also to challenge the assumptions within it, I think at your big data gathering moments, yeah, base, midline, end line, yeah, a couple of quarterly whatevers in the middle, those feel like moments to reflect. I think for me, it's about reflecting more rather than less, particularly in the context of thinking about theories of change as a thing that you use to learn with. I feel like we often decide that we've got these like we punctuate our lives with these learning moments. So now we're going to do this learning thing. It's now it's time for us to learn as opposed to just creating cultures of learning where you're just learning and ideating and changing and shifting as a matter of course versus like a planned thing that you put in your eye calendar or whatever. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And the theory of change should be a piece of framework, a space that enables some of that learning culture. But the problem is, it's also tended to sit within M&E. And if you tie it to a learning agenda and learning questions, I think we need to get better at assigning roles and responsibilities to take those forward because sometimes it's too much or, you know, there's not a concrete idea of whose role and responsibility is it to test parts of the theory of change and write papers or gather evidence. Um, So if they're more frequently tied to learning agendas and that learning agenda is situated across different programs or across different other parts of the organization, Mm. it's just a nice way to tie back responsibility so that a diverse group of people can come together with evidence and what they found and then reflect it back. It seems psychotic to me that a theory of change would rest with Emily. Not because I don't respect you and think you're fantastic and a genius, because it's about the big thing. I guess it depends on how it's pitched. But when I'm thinking about an organizational theory of change, I very much have seen this sit with a monitoring and evaluation and learning team primarily. And I find that very odd because it's about so much more than that. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Okay. And and when it sits... I thought you might. And when it's just situated with M&E, it just often becomes another thing that M&E has to work on. And to integrate that with other parts of the organization almost becomes like a a sales pitch. Yeah. (laughs) For any any of the M&E folk out there, you'll know what I mean. 
if we take the ambition of participatory and apply it at every level, then having a wholly participatory model for creating, touching, evaluating, challenging, interrogating a theory of change, then it sits outside of the space of a single team and moves more toward collective ownership and collaboration and participation in all of the ways that you might engage with it. So is that maybe the, the one of the stamps that we'd put on it? Like stop trying to sink a theory of change into your M&E team and start putting it into all your teams as a thing that, you know, like as you were saying before about like finance and HR and like where do they feature in these things? Yeah, definitely. Everyone needs to see how they feature in a theory of change. He's still talking objectives and key results, but yeah. Fine, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. Yeah, we'll just call it theory of change. Okay. So if we say that you know, one way that we can hack it. I mean, it's not quite a hack because we're not like dismantling it completely. We're just making tweaks in some ways. So adopting a participatory model, having rights holders, having teams, having it sit across organizations in some ways, the concept of collective outcomes from a nexus perspective, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're having to gather evidence or challenge it together. It's just that everybody's kind of pointed in the same direction. I hope there'd be some way of bringing that together, but I don't know what that looks like at this point. Okay, well, we can do that on the next podcast. And so thinking about how a theory of change might situate itself in all of the other theories of change that are bopping around is another one. So again, coming back to moving it into a more participatory space, taking it out of isolation and bringing it into a space where it can take your theory of change for a walk so it can play with all the other theories of change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. Be nice. Another way is to stop thinking about it as a linear thing. Yeah. That A plus B always equals C. Yeah, definitely. And especially in fragile and conflict-affected contexts, it rarely works like that. And you'll go from A to B to F, maybe back to B to Z and the unpredictable. Do you say Z because I say Z? What did, I, did I say Z? You did. What is it? Z? Z? Oh, weirdo. No, Z. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Z. Yeah. I mean, you're... British. So it's just, yeah, it's just like tiny. Do I say Z, Z, or Z? I don't think anybody says Z. So stop that because that's insane. Okay. Anyway, getting out of the linear, accepting a bit of backslide, accepting lateral shift. Yeah. Because okay. I think in a lot of cases, you can think that because we haven't gone from A to B, that means it failed. Mm. When actually there might be a number of external factors that meant it wasn't actually possible at that time and or something worse was prevented from happening. Mm -hmm. Like there is an assumption within the theory of change that you're always working to an impact when actually you could be preventing something worse from happening, which in of itself is, it's pretty impactful. is an impact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's stabilizing impact. Really. Yeah. Okay. What else are we going to do to take our theories of change to the next level? You touched on it a little bit before about the theory of change not becoming an echo chamber, because I think it can easily become that. I think there has to be a way that the theory of change does not only include your immediate stakeholders, but includes maybe people in the donor space or in the private sector space or a broader set of people to challenge what's written there mm. or your critical friends, if you like. Because I think the theory of change has the danger of becoming not only a space where it reinforces everyone's ideas and ideologies, but also is a space of a lot of jargon. 
Like the theory of change is often the space where empowerment, sustainability, capacity, strengthening situate themselves next to each other. Shifting power. Yeah, all Localization. of it. And then suddenly you've got this sort of map of jargon. Yeah. So I think that has to be hacked hugely. We just need to stop using jargon full stop. Basically. Okay, cool. I want to go back to something you said as well about how you integrate power, gender and power analysis, conflict analysis into a theory of change, because I don't think I fully grasped how you might, from like a practical sense, do that or where it features. So that's the first one. And then the second one is a question that you raised yourself. And where where do you put the interrogation when you start diving in? Where would you know, where would you put it? So two points. Starting with the second one, I think the interrogation should almost be a second version or a third version or a fourth okay. or fifth version. So you treat the theory of change as if it's a diagram to be written on, to be commented on, to have boxes, whatever, all over it. And it becomes like this living reality of what's changed people's opinions. Mm. And I've seen that before and it's really cool. Like the theory of change just becomes a map of people's evidence or opinions around the <gasps> boxes and arrows. We should put it in the metaverse. <laughs> That's our idea. And, and so then you go on to refine that and that becomes kind of your version two. And then you write and critique version two and then it becomes right. your version three. So then you have a map of versions that are built over a period of time. I'm going to make an augmented reality theory of change. Wow. Okay. <laughs> And you can just pick up all the pieces and move them around to different bits. <laughs> That's cool. Like a game. Yeah. I'm going to gamify theories of change. Excellent. Very good. And so your first one on gender and power analysis, that should be, first of all, built into the design of it. Mm -hmm. So you need to understand through your power analysis what stakeholders and players are there, how they might interact with the outcome that you've set out. And we're kind of forgetting a little bit that theory of change not only have assumptions, but they also have risks. So you'd also include those kinds of things in your risks. Okay. When you do a power analysis or a gender analysis more frequently, that should also become part of the narrative and part of the update. And, you know, feature in learning reports and other reports and so on. And I think to a large extent, what you find and your analysis through those, you know, gender power conflict analysis should also be reflected back on the theory of change, either in blogs, learning papers, however your organization learns. But one thing that's really missing for me, sorry, is another point that needs hacking is a theory of change is often taken out of context. Oops. And so when you look at a theory of change, you know, it doesn't say anything about the conflict dynamics that are happening. So there is often a mismatch there as well. I realize that a lot of this is not necessarily like radical hacks, but probably just micro changes that could lead to something a bit more useful. You're a fan of incrementalism. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe we should leave it there unless we've got any questions. Feel free to request to speak and throw a question in. Right, super. Thanks, Lauren. I found this really informative. Yeah, me too. Very interesting. And and who knew that you could talk so much about the theory of change? I can imagine that in a situation where I said you had another hour, you probably would though. Yeah, probably. I'm Tia. And I'm Lauren. And this was the Journey to Transformation, a Twitter edition. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.